This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Have you been thinking about learning Clojure but don't know where to start? Would you like a fun introduction to Clojure that guides you through the difficulties of learning new concepts? Would you like to learn the fundamentals of Clojure without spending hours wading through blog post tutorials? Try the interactive courses at PurelyFunctional.tv. They teach you Clojure quickly and thoroughly using animations, exercises, and screencasts. The courses build good fundamentals and guide you to develop deep skills with the Clojure language and libraries. You can get a 25% discount by using the link purelyfunctional.tv. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into today's episode. First, I want to let everyone know about CodeMesh. CodeMesh London is the European conference for alternative technologies and programming languages. It takes place on the 3rd and 4th of November, with the tutorial days preceding it on the 2nd of November, and CodeMesh brings together a wide range of alternative technologies and programming languages, and the wonderful, crazy people who use them to solve real-world problems in the software industry. Expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers, including Sir Tony Hoare, creator of the Quicksort algorithm, co-designer of Haskell, John Hughes, the co-inventors of Erlang, Joe Armstrong and Robert Ferding, Don Syme, creator of F-Sharp, co-inventor of Julia, Stefan Karpinski, Evan Zablicki, designer of Elm, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many more. Use the code FNGeekery10 for a 10% discount on the two days of conference. Second, Chicago Erlang is also coming up on the 10th of October. The format of this year is a bit special. Instead of a conference, it will run as a one-day Erlang workshop in the heart of Chicago. It will have two tracks, Essentials, led by past guest Martin Logan, as well as Fred Herbert, and an IoT app build-out track, led by seasoned web-scale engineers Brian Troutwine and Garrett Smith. The goal of Chicago Erling is to keep it interesting and super affordable. Early bird registration is $49, and full price is $69. In addition to Chicago Erling, City Code will be taking place on the 9th of October, the day before. City Code Chicago is a one-day immersive technology conference for programmers to spark creativity and innovation that invites brilliant speakers from Chicago and around the U.S. to share important ideas and let those flame into deeper exchange with you involved in the discussion. This year, City Code Chicago will be at the world-famous Second City Theater. This small venue, designed for improv theater, brings speaker and audience together. There's one track, so everyone shares and contributes to the same experience. Join them Friday, October 9th, 2015, to feed and invigorate your inner geek. Also, ElixirConf 2015 is coming up on the 2nd and 3rd of October, with a day of workshops the day before on the 1st of October, down in Austin, Texas. You can still register for the two-day, two-track conference, or add the optional one day of training on October 1st as well, but hurry, some training classes are already filling up. Breakfast, lunch, and Wi-Fi are provided at the conference. Over 28 speakers and 200 attendees will be at the conference, and keynote speakers include past guests of the podcast, Jose Valim, and Jessica Kerr. Don't miss this opportunity. To find out more and to register, visit www.elixirconf.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, please email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to help spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear about, please reach out, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. 
Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Joe Barnes. Joe, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. As you said, I'm Joe Barnes, based out of Huntsville, Alabama, doing uh, Scala now for a couple of years. Managed to make it part of my day job and excited to sit here and join the podcast and talk to you guys about it. So you're into Scala. I know there's a couple of different routes that people have come into Scala. Did you take the general Java background into Scala or was there another way you came in? Absolutely. Java background. I did Java professionally for several years and then uh, also learned quite a bit of it in college as that was one of the primary languages used at my university. And it was around 2012 when Martin Odersky had his first uh, free course on Coursera. And I took it that fall because I was getting interested in functional programming. Some folks local to me have a functional programming meetup group called Hunt Funk, which is short for Huntsville Functional Programming. So it's it was kind of an opportunity. It's like, well, here's one as a free course. That'd be a great way to learn. And I also felt that I could kind of ease my way into functional programming while still being able to do something productive since it does mix the styles of object-oriented as, along with the functional. So what about Hunt Funk and functional programming caught your attention when you were starting out? How did you kind of get into that glimmer of your eye and say, this is something we're checking out more. I need to spend some time and seriously look into it, especially if you're taking an online course. Honestly, it was the people. Firstly, there's just a handful of guys that are in there organizing it, just part of that community that I'd already known locally in our community and I looked up to. So just that influence was honestly the biggest thing. I just These are people I look up to and would definitely be all ears if they're up to something. And so I was like, okay, well, I certainly need to look at this. And I've been doing the J2EE, JBoss thing and seeing how everything seems to always fall apart. And then you have these folks that are saying, oh, it doesn't have to be that way. There's another way to do things. So it's like, okay, well, let's look into that. So it's just kind of a perfect storm for me. So when you started taking Odeski's course on Scala, do you recall some of the things that you kind of had the epiphany about based off your other past experiences of like, oh, these things are falling apart. And then you're like, yeah, I kind of had that conclusion before, but this kind of, was there anything that lessons you learned from that, that you kind of like had the epiphany of like, oh, so this kind of helps solve that specifically and how this is how it solves it. And if you were already on the track of going that way without knowing you were. I wouldn't say that started happening during the course. While I was going through there, it was partly just interesting types of uh, just different ways to think about programming. Like one of the first things I remember going, just kind of just stopping and looking at it, really thinking about it was the fact that everything was an expression and not this sort of, you know, the statement changing the state of things. And, you know, just even the if else that I could assign if else to something, you know, kind of blew my mind for a little while. But it wasn't until I started seeing that I could massage data structures without changing them. And that's where I started seeing things is really good because one thing that happened to me back in my previous position working on that JBoss application is we had to do some pretty complicated finagling of some pretty complex class hierarchy that was persistent using an object database called Versant, which um, I doubt many people have heard of any longer. And we mapped that over to Hibern- uh, with Hibernate, mapped that to a SQL database And it was successful, but one of the challenges I ran into was mutability and it causing some serious problems. And so whenever I had a relationship where there's a collection of children objects, I insisted we make that thing read-only. I didn't know the word immutable at the time, but I was making it read-only. And it was not very popular on my team because they kept hitting it and they're just so used to mutating and everything. And then I saw like, in Scala, and of course, as I know, it's common in functional languages in general. So you are encouraged to use immutable collections, and you're given powerful functions in which to manipulate those to get new collections that have been operated on the way you want. And that's exactly kind of where I was going, because again, I mentioned it before, but I've had the .NET Java background as well in the past. And that whole read-only collections and value objects, and you start messing in big enough systems, you're like, can I just have this be a real value object instead of something that we're mutating the state on? And, yes. 
uh, well, is this actually in a valid state? Like, are we done with this state modification because we're setting individual fields separately instead of together and knowing that? So, and I know that's a big thing in the Java world that there are a lot of patterns around as well to kind of solve some of these problems. So that was that was the sec- essentially what I was thinking of. So as soon as you said, oh, immutability and collections, you get that for free. That was kind of one of those kind of reinforced your thought of what made Scala interesting kind of thing. That's right. Yeah, it really did. And, and and just just kind of seeing it was more mathematical too. So when I was in school, I double majored with mathematics. And so it, it certainly just resonates naturally with me. So I always have to keep in mind that everyone has that same background, but it's cool to see that even folks that are more just pure computer science or engineering also do really well with it uh, once they start seeing the concepts play out. And Another thing I also want to mention that was that really made me go, okay, Scala is something that's really good for me to invest in is just how much stuff it gives you for free when it comes to making classes, particularly a case class. So just to go, I don't know um, how much you've had a chance to play with Scala, but going back to your Java days, you know, if you have something that represents data, it's a, a class like anything else, but you have to go in and you've got to, first off, you define your, your fields and your getters and setters and your constructor. And then you got to define equals and you got to give hash code that's consistent with equals. You probably want a two string and the list goes on and on, all these things you got to do. And in Scala, it's literally a one-liner. You just say the name of the class, you give parameters that are going to be not only your fields, but your getters and it's your constructor arguments and all the equals and all those things just take care of themselves because again, it's, it's immutable. So you don't have to worry about those things changing on you and so forth. So that was another one where it went, ah, okay, this is nice. I can finally have data and just let it be data. So that case class is more of a struct slash in the C or C++ sense but immutable as well, where it's just these fields of these types and this is what you get. Yeah, that's right. Now, you can certainly add functions and so forth to or you would, I guess, more properly call them methods to a case class. But yeah, it's very much a struct. Like Here's here's the data fields and they're all going to be defined. And if it's something that maybe isn't defined, well, then you go with your option type, you know, and put that in the type system and, and so forth. But yeah, it's very much... Uh, like a struct in that sense, and it's, it's data. And that's what I wanted to clarify, because I've seen it a few, and as frequently as I don't see it, I keep confusing it every time I hear the term, and I know that some people out here are probably never listening, have probably never messed with Scala as well, so I wanted to, every time I hear case, I think something like one of the summation or summation types in the Haskell or ML, where it's are you this, or are you this, or are you this? You're one of these types, but it's not really a set of types. It's a specific thing that represents a struct and a data structure. Right, and it does map to what you're talking about because you, know, you use case classes when you want to do your abstract data types, which is like you're describing. And, um, and I think part of the reason they call them case classes is because they do work very well in pattern matching, which is the syntax is always each line is preceded with case so you put case and then you put the pattern and uh, that's some of the more stuff you actually get for free with a case class that you wouldn't explain to a java developer because it's pattern matching is something new at that point but it's in addition to the things that I already described that you get for free with a case class you also get the functions that are needed to make it work in pattern matching and uh, so you can do basically it looks like you deconstruct the object is the way it comes out and uh, another thing that's really cool about the way they approach it is, and I'd be curious if, about Erlang too, and I know you've got some background there because I know the pattern matching is one of its well-regarded features and that Scala's pattern matching is very extensible. And the fact that if you want to create a new pattern to match on, you just have to create a function called unapply. And it's something that you could use with like parsing and all sorts of things. But the reason I say that is because um, yeah, you know, recently in our one of our Hunt Funk meetings, we did talk about Erlang, and uh, folks were talking about how good it does even binary pattern matching. And uh, you know, sitting there thinking, it's like, well, you know, I could if Scala didn't feature that as in the language, you could go build it yourself and extend it because uh, it's it's very straightforward to go add your own pattern matching. Yeah, Erlang doesn't quite have that, if I understand you correctly. That sounds something more like the F# ML kind of pattern matching, where they can 
pull out functions and kind of name pattern matching and clauses and have it apply check a function versus just the basic built-ins. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, because Scala's is is more of a very generic language feature, and like I mentioned, you just you have to have an unapply function, and there's you know it's got to return a certain type and all this stuff. But we've used it recently on our project here at work, and uh, it was it was made some really elegant solutions to some pretty basic parsing we were having to do with some data. So as you got into Scala, I know that there's a couple of different routes people take. Did you kind of just do the for lack of a better comparison, rename my Java files, Scala files, and yeah. then just say, it's this is the real Java, and I'm just moving things over one at a time? Or did you kind of go more into the deep end and try and go with, I'm trying to make this more Scala-ish as much and not do that slow transition from Java to Scala when you were starting to make your new files and move things over? Yeah, so, you know, especially when I go to a Scala conference and I see some of the the conversations that are either had as part of a presentation or in the, in the hallways, and I'm always reminded I'm still uh, a Java developer trying to do better Java. So I certainly started there because years of experience with it. What else am I going to do? And I never mixed projects that much. The project I was working on at that time frame, I was learning it. I did write some pieces. We're doing some network graph stuff, so I thought, hey, this would be a great fit for Scala because it's data you know, have all these functions to work with and such so, uh, disapproves of concepts there. But I always tried to learn the the new things, but always still being productive. So anytime I had to kind of fall back to what I already understood, you can do that with Scala. And I, I know for some folks, that's a bad thing, especially if you come from like high school, though, where things are very pure and, uh, you know, the attitude is sort of like, well, you should just handicap yourself or, you know, pull back and then learn it exactly the purest way. And then regain your productivity over time, which is certainly understandable and valid, but that's not the approach I took. So I was always, well, get the job done. If I have to use a VAR, put it there, put a to-do to go back and think and try to figure out how to get rid of it. Because if I remember right, Scala can almost be done as the way TypeScript and JavaScript is, where it's like you just rename it and you, like valid Java code is valid Scala code, correct? Or is there a little bit more finagling that you still have to do once you take your Java class as is to turn it into a Scala class? They're syntactically too different to, you know, they're, one's not a superset of the other. So they're not related quite as closely as TypeScript is to JavaScript. But the you know, cool thing is editors like IntelliJ, if you actually have a Java file open and you copy some code and you paste it into Scala and go, oh, you want me to convert this? And, you know, it's obviously you can't copy paste all of it over, but most of it you can. And uh, for instance, you know, one thing that's different is, uh, you know, when you declare a new variable in Java, you say, we'll say we're doing a string. So you say string, my string equals some literal or whatever. Scala's flipped, so you say, first off, you have to say val or var, depending on if you want to change it. You say the name, my string, and then colon the type. So it's got to rearrange things anytime you do a copy-paste. But to that point, there's nothing that Java can do that Scala can't do. And in the other direction is a little bit more challenging. So it's, it's easy to convert, but it's not automatic unless you get some tooling to do it for you. Okay, yeah, it's like, I don't think that's quite right, but I can't remember... But I do remember people showing demos of like, it is very basic to migrate and you can essentially take your Java code with your logic mostly as is. And I now that you mention it, the small syntactic changes, but that is all still valid Gala once you just change your type declaration, your variable declarations and maybe your function declarations and types and just kind of move around that signature. That's right. Yeah. And that's how you started out was kind of going down that route when you wrote the Java, or did you try and get a little more idiomatic with your Scala in the sense that Scala has any sort of idiom, which I'll explain in a minute, but... Yeah, I know what you mean. No, I really tried to embrace the more functional style as much as I could digest at the time. And I've certainly, even to this point, a couple of years later... I'm not using like Scala-Z, which is the generic programming library that really pushes the envelope towards Haskell. I'm familiar with it, but I've not used it extensively. And I can talk a little bit more about the makeup of my team and why I would decide to go that route and and hold off. But yeah, it's not like I spent a lot of time copy-pasting because I really wanted to learn new ways to think and working with immutable data and, and so forth. But sometimes when you're in a mixed project and you want to do something with Scala and the only example you have that's working is Java, you can paste it over. And 
Yeah, because Scala does, it, it can do imperative things. And also anything exposed to a Java API can be called natively with Scala without it even looking funny in any way. Now, the, the paradigm, of course, would be a little different, right? You have mutable objects and things. So there's not any awkward bumps that you're typically going to hit when you're trying to call sort of a any kind of a Java API from Scala because they really have that story done very well. And one of the things, too, that's often looked at as a negative in the functional community towards Scala is the fact that it does support subtyping in the type system, which makes it really, really complex. And it's not something I understand well. I can I just understand that it is complex. But as unfortunate as that might be for a pure Scala project for someone who really wants to be functional, it ties in nicely with Java because that's the way Java works. So it allows them to have a really nice interop story with existing Java libraries. So it's, you know, it's a trade-off. What do you want to have? You want to have more pure functional programming or do you want to be able to interface with Java really well? And that's kind of where I was going with the uh, interface with Java, the pure functional. One of the people at work who's in a nearby slash related group kind of made mention when he was talking about Scala the other day that there's kind of three styles, three tribes he's seen is the Java Enterprise style of Scala, the let's make it look like Ruby style, and then the let's go all the way and make it look like a Haskell or ML family language, which you kind of touched on with Scala Z. But what have you seen there with the different styles and groups of the Scala developers that you've run into? Yeah, when you say that, I I can't say that I can think of a lot of the the Ruby style, and I know where that comes from because, uh, you know, Twitter, which was originally a Ruby on Rails project that got big, right? And there's a lot of early Scala adoption that took place in at Twitter. And so they have pretty big influence on the community, I think, around the 2009 to 2011 time frame, if I'm remembering correctly. Obviously, I was not into Scala at that time, but it's just the, the things you can read that were going on around that time. But I think in present day, you definitely see this camp that Scala is a better Java and you see the camp that Scala is Haskell Lite for the JVM. We all get along well. I don't see there's ever any friction there. But you just tell what the emphasis is for the two camps. It's really interesting for me to go from Java, and, and I'm always pushing towards, I think, the, the Haskell Lite camp because I always see the benefits of being more and more pure. So Scala gives you a nice continuum where you can graduate yourself in that direction without ever having, like I mentioned earlier, you can be productive as you learn and grow. And I think his comment was more the style tribes of that when you're using different libraries. And one library is a very Haskell-style way of thinking and the type declarations and the things you have to pass around and use it versus this other library that's written in Scala has this other one. And you're trying to consume both of them with two different styles. And while the interop's there, it's like you might have to do a bit of coercion to take one style of typing and case classes into a different style, which is more the Haskell style with some union types that you might not be dealing with otherwise. Right. And, you know, in my experience so far, there's not been a lot of friction with that. But I don't want to speak too generally because I've, I've only used a handful of libraries here and there. And generally, I've, I have shot away from the more advanced uh, functional programming ones. You know, but you, you certainly see where, for instance, one that's really interesting right now is called Doobie. It's a database library primarily developed by a guy named Rob Norris, mutual followers on Twitter. And But, you know, if you're really familiar with Scala Z and all those things, that library just makes sense, right? And so that sort of thing is there. But, you know, making them work is just, I think it's more of like you've got your application and the way you're thinking about things and you just bring that library in and you just got to think about how your problem maps over to their domain or how they want to solve that particular domain. Yeah, and I think that was more his point was, was like, oh, it's not that it's bad, but to be warned that your problem domain doesn't necessarily always map just because you have the different ways of thinking about designing APIs and consuming APIs. And are you dealing with something that thinks of mutable objects or are you thinking of something that's everything that's pure? And how does each one of those fit into your domain when you're having to interop with it? That's right. So you mentioned Scala Z or Scala Z, as I've heard other people call it, just depending on. Yeah, it seems to be kind of regional, Yeah, which way you call it. 
But can you kind of dig into a little bit about that? Because I've only heard very high-level stuff about it, but I've never heard, really heard any details or what kind of problems that's attempting to solve other than your specific reference to kind of a more Haskell-ish style thing. So what does Scala Z bring from the table from the selling point of it, even if you haven't used it quite yourself? Right. I've used a piece of it here and there, not used it extensively. So what it gets a lot into, one of the first things you'll be confronted with is very much the, the Haskell abstraction. So they have actually a monad type and a functor type and applicatives and those types of abstractions that are kind of part of the Haskell experience and part of the, uh, yeah, I don't know if prelude is the right word. I think that's what the, it was called in Haskell. So it's just kind of built into the language. So you get those sorts of things. It gives you memoization, for instance, which I know is a part of Haskell runtime. And another one that comes to mind is, I think they call it task, which is it's very similar to a future or a promise, depending on the language terminology you're used to. So it gives you a little more control over the execution and so forth of that particular computation. So it's those types of things. It's very generic, very applicable to any project. It's just, are you used to thinking with those abstractions or not? And for me, I'm comfortable with abstractions, but I'm not fluent in these abstractions yet, much less you know ready to bring them into a project and learn them well enough that I can teach the rest of my team how to use them as well. That makes sense. Yeah, I've heard about like Scala-Z's, the new thing on the block. There's some interest in it, but I didn't actually ever hear what it was. So let's actually talk about your team makeup and bringing Scala either into your team in the past or kind of your team makeup now and how you're working with your teams and bringing ideas in. Has your team been pretty much on board and familiar or was this something you kind of had to do a hard sell on? How did you kind of bring this in and start to get working with it? Because it's one thing from going hey, this is interesting. I'm going to play around, do side projects, maybe show up some user groups and stuff I'm working on, things that I've learned, writing blog posts about it versus I'm rolling onto a team that has never used it, if that's the case, or making the sell of, we've got a few people here. How do we bring it to the larger team and find out where we fit these things in? Yeah, towards your latter half is the situation that happened here. So I won't go much into my previous employer when, when I was first learning it, but you know, late 2012. So uh, summer of 2013 is when I had an opportunity to take another position here in town and as a a senior architect of a team. And it's a very small team that was still forming. So they had just two junior developers were in place. And then, of course, the usual, we have like a product owner or product manager, depending on terminology you're used to. Then I got added. And since then, we've, we've had a lot more teammates come on. So yeah, it was a very young team in terms of experience and so forth. And well, we had a few projects. We were either doing proofs of concepts or taking over and trying to do a little bit of maintenance here and there. Most everything was Java and in particular, Google Web Toolkit, actually, uh, GWT, because we're doing a lot of web stuff on this team. When it came time for us to consider starting a new one from scratch, I thought, hey, you know, I've done all this GWT stuff. It works. But, you know, if you look at the look across the the board of the web landscape, no one's doing that. You know, the type of applications you build out of it, like desktop applications, and that's not what we wanted. But for the higher ups, it was like, well, you have people who write Java, so you should give them Java things like there's not this strong belief that people can learn. But fortunately, I was able to really sell management and the team on like, well, actually, we can learn. and. This particular company I'm at now, Mentor Graphics, is really big in embracing agile principles, so valuing team members over processes and tools and all that stuff. So there was not a lot of hesitancy to say, okay, well, we believe we can do this. And so I kind of also had to tell my young teammates on, hey, you guys want to learn a new language? I know you've been doing Java and you're getting good at it, but let's try to do something better. And the other thing that was really big for me that I really was sold on was Lyft in particular, which is... Um, it's actually a pretty old web framework now. It's still over eight years old, which is it's kind of fun because it, you think of Scala, the language, as this cutting-edge new thing. It's been around a little while, and this particular framework has, has been around a really long time. But I was really sold on the type of application we could build, something we could be really proud of, and something we could be productive with just a few people because at the time we just had three and so I had to do a lot of selling and so forth, like you mentioned. But fortunately, that's, that's come out to be successful. And I feel that so far, you know, the, the project has been very much a success. So I think we've made the right choice. And it's been a challenge. It's a lot of fun because I'm 
teaching as much as I am building and it's something I'm still learning, but it was definitely worth the risk. My job is certainly a lot more fun than it could have been if we decided to do something that was a little more conservative. So was a lot of that selling mainly to the management and you had kind of open-minded team members or were you having to sell equally as hard pretty much to both people and convince like this is something worth learning, this is different than what you're doing, but you will get value out of it? Or was it just, look, management, I get that they've got Java experience, you think Java is safe and we can be safe with Java, but here's the reasons why we should look elsewhere. Yeah, so uh, the the team wasn't as hard to convince as it was with with management because again they're they're kind of young and not ready to feel strongly about their opinions. So I had to dig actually to say, okay, how do you feel about this? Really, you got to tell me, you know, because I don't want to just uh, steamroll you with my ideas here. And management was not a hard sell either, honestly, but it was just more of you know we would like to use this. Is anybody going to have a problem with it? And I will say, I hadn't mentioned this yet, but the only real constraint we had, well, I would say there's two. One, we were going to use Amazon Web Services, so you can deploy anything, right? It's just, uh, they're just virtual machines, not a big constraint. But two is that some portions of our project would need to be deployed on a private customer domains where we already have an established JVM product using JBoss and sorts of things. So there was good reason to stick to the JVM even though we did discuss some options otherwise. So, and plus with my experience with the JVM in production was was a positive to stick with the JVM as our choice on that. And that also put a lot of momentum or I guess uh, reason behind Lyft because Lyft actually deploys to Java servlet containers. So we knew that whatever we built, we would have no problem to deploy in both areas. So yeah, but uh, with, towards management though, it was just, I feel the the management who knows me trusted me and believed that that we could build a team however we needed to do it. But it was sort of the upper management to say that you want to use what? Well, why would you do that? So it wasn't too bad. I mean, we we made our case and we're still we're still not fired, so that's good. So you mentioned the deployment story. Can you clarify what it takes to kind of include Scala in your projects? Is it just simply another jar that you pull in? And you take advantage of it, or is there kind of more around that to pull in Scala and start using Scala? And I'm thinking kind of like I know Clojure is just another jar with the interpreter and everything, and then there's tooling around it. But how does Scala fit in with starting a project and having projects in and with the JVM and packaging them up and deploying them? And kind of like can you sneak Scala in because you don't realize it and it's just a jar as long as your team and your local group does it, or is that something that's like, oh, you've got to re-overhaul your whole Java deployment process and get new things on the system and everything else? Right. So, yeah. So the great news is it's it's similar to Clojure in the fact that it really is just one jar. There is a Scala library jar. Now, there's a few other little pieces you might need if you're using some of the optional features of the language or language libraries, I should say. But yeah, so it depends on obviously what you're working with outside of your team. Are you going to be working with like a DevOps type group and are they going to have to understand how to deploy your software and so forth? For us, again, it was pretty fortunate. There, Here's AWS, go forth and build. So it really didn't matter. We could have used Haskell or whatever had it not been for the story of possibly uh, deploying pieces of our application and JBoss. So yeah, the language itself is just a jar. You can package your own application as a jar. You can use Maven or Gradle and other popular build tools with Scala. I found that the one that's uh, sort of tailored for Scala development called SBT, Simple Build Tool, which is starting to become an ironic name because it's getting less simple. It's definitely the way to go if you're doing a pure Scala project. But the cool thing is at the end of the day, you produce a jar and a list of dependency jars you just go deploy it like you would if it's a Java application. It's really no different in that regard. Okay, yeah, that was one of the things I wasn't sure where it fit was. Is it just something you could bundle up into your complete war file or other tar, tar jar and everything else? Or is it something like, oh, we need some extra dependencies in? And I guess with that is because it can be compiled as just a jar in your project, that can actually help reduce some of these interdependencies that other languages have as well, where it's like, well, we've got, I know Ruby, for example, or potentially even or Node and some of these other things. So like, well, we've got multiple versions on this machine, which means we need to target the right version or even 
the JVM specifically is like, which version of the JVM are we targeting? We need to know that because it's going to run differently. But with Scala, you could just say, well, this one app is bundled with this version of Scala and this other app is bundled with this other version of Scala and it becomes less of a hassle and headache to cross-manage your versions of Scala individually, correct? Yeah, that's right. Now, one thing that's often a sticking point for folks coming into Scala is that it's not binary compatible across Scala versions. From a deployment perspective, it's not a problem because, like we're saying with a WAR file or however you're packaging it, it just means you have this version of the Scala jar versus that version. So from the outside, it looks fine. Also, for a while, at least as long as I've been working with Scala, which is not terribly long, um, it has targeted Java 6 bytecode version. So as long as you had six or better, the bytecode would run as long as all your uh, Scala versions agreed. Because if, if you were to compile with one Scala version and include the wrong Scala version jar file, either for the language itself or just one of the libraries, you'll get some really difficult to understand class verification errors and things. It just goes really badly. But that's generally, if you're using like SBT, like I mentioned, it, it keeps all your Scala versions organized for you well, so you don't make that mistake easily. And generally, that's I've only seen people struggle with that more if they're working with, say, Maven or Gradle, because it's not built to work with the Scala binary incompatibility issue. The only other problem you run into, and this is actually something we've been discussing recently on the Lyft forum, is because Scala can call right into the Java APIs, you do need to be careful about which JVM version you're using to run your build. Only if you need to be careful about what you're calling. For instance, uh, there's some Java NIO type packages are now available in, in the JDK 7. If you're going to target running JDK 6, you don't want to compile your Scala code with JDK 7 because you might call one of those functions and it'll compile fine in that environment. It'll make perfectly valid JDK 6 bytecode. But when you deploy it on JDK 6, it will not find that built-in library. So generally, I don't think projects hit that problem a lot, but it is something to, to bear in mind if you're going to be working different JVM versions. But the good news is that's it's almost a power user type thing If for you to have that kind of problem. Usually folks are compiling and running in the same JDK. And is there anything in the Java 8 that's come out recently that has kind of given, from what you've seen, new benefits of Scala now that there's some additional support and features in the JDK and Java land with the Java bytecode support for things like lambdas and all that? So actually, that's just a resounding yes. So right now, Scala's latest version is 2.11.7 and 2.12.x series that's actively in development right now will only target JDK 8. And the reason is the bytecode can be so much slimmer. I don't want to say what the number is, but it's, I know it's less than half the size. I mean, it may be even as small as like an eighth or something, but anybody listening, needs look, don't quote me on that number. It's just from vague recollection. Because, yeah, the, the language now and the JVM itself supports some closures and types of things for the Java language. So now Scala has to do a lot less trickery to make it work in that environment because the things that, makes doing a functional language in JVM a challenge up until JDK 8 is because uh, the JVM is nominally typed, which if you're not familiar, that means that the name is what constitutes a type. And of course, types then translate to class file names and so forth. And so when you go to reference something in an API, the, the JVM, when it's running, looks it up based on name of that class. And, and again, at compile time, that you would think of that as a type, but at runtime, it's just a class name. So you get a lot of really funny looking class files coming out of Scala, because if you have this deeply nested function, this anonymous, you see lots of little dollar signs and a non-funk and all these things in the class name. Some of that gets to go away now that the JVM understands some of the ideas that you need for to get functions and things sort of referenced correctly in the language. And so there's a lot of optimization that's coming. As far as I know, there's not any new features that are unlocked, but it's definitely much more optimal to compile a language like Scala that has the functional paradigm into bytecode. And I think I heard somewhere 
that you kind of mentioned the types and the nominally typed and everything like that. Does did I hear it was Scala that says if you've got the same class type in two different libraries that are two different versions, so that sorry, the same library that's two different versions, that they each get their own kind of reference, so you don't have to kind of worry about stepping on the toes because it says, oh, this thing uses this version of a library and then this thing uses this other version of the library, so those are seen as two different distinct class types. So that is possible with the JVM if you are careful. Out of the box, no, you're going to get problems. Um, you will get conflicts. But it gets down into, and, um, I'll just kind of briefly mention it, but it gets into the, this notion of the class loader, which is an object in, or a, it's a type and, and Java Lang library that its job is to take the name of something you want to reference and go find it on the file system. But you can have multiple class loaders. And so there are frameworks, libraries type things that let you have isolated class loaders so that if you get structured so that, say, if you're running this portion of code, it knows its dependency is this version of a library. So the class loader will grab the correct one. But if you're over here, it'll grab the correct one. But still, you could have problems if they, say, access data objects and try to communicate and pass those objects to one another. The, the types are going to have the same name, but not actually be the same. So you can still get some really ugly stuff there, but the Scala language itself is not providing any functionality to help you with that. You got to get into doing it, like I mentioned, through libraries. I'm drawing a blank right now, but there's also an effort that I think is related, supposedly planned for Java 9, this uh, Jigsaw project. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that helps with this regard. But for now, you've got to kind of manage it with your own class loaders and stuff. Kind of want to make a transition into one of the your recent breakups you've had and you've announced. But before we kind of get into why you've broken up with it, can you give everybody a little bit of overview about it? And that breakup was Akka. So can you kind of give a overview for anybody who's maybe heard the term but unfamiliar with it or haven't even heard it, what Akka is? Yeah, so Akka is a library it can be used really well in either Scala or Java and is an implementation of the actor pattern or actor programming model, which, of course, is very well known in the Erlang community. But it tries to take that same model and offer it to the JVM platform. So kind of a way you can think of programming with actors is... Each actor is this, supposed to be this isolated process. Now, in the Erlang world, it truly is an isolated process in JVM. You're still within one running process on the JVM, but it's a separate thing that's supposed to be single-threaded, so you don't have to worry about concurrency kind of concerns at a low level. The idea is it's also based on message passing. So one actor can consume a message at a time, for instance, and do its computation, send messages to other actors, reply to the original actor that asked itself for a question, and that sort of thing. And so it's a very, uh, you know, to use the buzzword, it's a reactive programming pattern and intended to give you a lot of ability to write fault-tolerant applications and a lot of things. It's very much, um, I guess, a reaction to, to getting the programming model to work out very well for fault tolerance and, and that sort of thing. That's kind of at a high level without getting too much in details of kind of how it works, I think. That sounds good. And then I believe that also has some supervision and resiliency things that it's supposed to get you in providing the higher level of concurrency thinking, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And kind of opens up the door for patterns such as supervision and things like that, like you mentioned. You kind of announced your breakup with Akka. You had it as a blog post. You kind of, I think you saw something else on Twitter. It may have been referencing the blog post as well. But do you want to kind of go in and talk about your experience with Akka and kind of like what led you into using Akka, what you found along the way, and why you decided it's time to break up with that manner of style of programming and thinking? Yeah, certainly. Because firstly, and I hope it's clear to folks who read the write-up I have is, you know, Akka is a very, very well done project. A lot of smart people working on it and the outstanding documentation. Like there's nothing bad you can say about the project in that regard. So I got into it after the uh, the course I mentioned with Odersky had it up in beginning in 2012. There was a second course of sort of a follow-on. It's called Reactive Programming Patterns or something along those lines that he did a few sections, and then Eric Meyer did a few sections. 
and Roland Coon did a few sections. And those last few sections were on actor model and using ACA in particular. And I was like, well, this is really interesting. This looks great. I understood it. Could be a really cool way for us to work on application because yeah, it talks about much about how application works, but there's a lot of aggregating other APIs and things that are external to our system. So it looks like it made sense. It also one thing that's funny is if you dig through my blog, you see I actually when I was in my J2EE world, I have a blog post that once upon a time I created my own crappy actor system, and I had actually using J2EE beans had done a lot of the concepts that are very well thought out and done well in comparison in ACA. And so it resonated with me really early on while I was still pretty early in my functional programming thinking and so forth. So that was one thing it definitely resonated earlier because it's, it's still arguably very object oriented. Each actor being an object, it's encapsulating things and it's hiding things from you. So I was very comfortable with that paradigm coming up to it. While the libraries, not, not them struggling with bugs in it and all that, again, it's a very high-quality library. As I've developed the system with a team over the past year and a half, getting close to two years now, I started to learn that you can build a nice system with it if you know what you're building. And what I mean by that is if you know up front all your requirements and all those things, things that don't happen with most projects, you'll be fine. But when you start getting in refactoring and things was where things really started, I felt broke down in comparison to if we had just tried to write everything as functions that return futures and things like that. Part of it is, you know, our own fault, just sort of being new to the paradigm. We were probably making more actors than we needed. We made some things that could just been, in fact, a function was, I mean, we had an actor that literally, it received a message, computed something and replied. And I looked at that and said, well, this is a function. There's no need to make this an actor. But, you know, sort of my misunderstanding and what I had thought with, with actors was that, oh, everything's an actor when you go that paradigm. That's not necessarily true. So that was more a mistake on our part than it is the model being a, a poor one uh, for us to use. But in, in general, I just found that it was difficult to reason about changes in the system particularly if you're in a statically typed language like Scala. And we could certainly discuss the merits of static typing and dynamic typing. But if that's what you're going to use, like in Scala, you don't have that with ACA because everything takes type any, which is literally anything. It's like the base type of the world. So if you decide to handle different messages, you don't have this nice type check to see where all of that falls apart. And the second thing that I didn't appreciate initially, but now I do is I've gotten more comfortable with functional programming is that not only does it accept a type of any, when you do send a message to an actor, it returns unit. So you literally have this little black box thing that has no static typing and it can only do side effects. And I'm like, well, this is the very thing I wanted to get away from with side effects. But the actor model feels like it just gives you this uh, license to go off and do side affecting things in this safe area. But you're still building a system of side effects. So it's very difficult to reason about. So I've just kind of felt that it's like, well, actors can do some things really well, but I only want those at the edges of my system. Just like, you know, when you look at functional design, you just want to have values and pure functions and all that throughout the majority of your program. And then only on the edges, you deal with IO and and hazards and stuff. That's where I want actors. They need to be out there where they're not going to cause me a lot of problems down the road. So that's what's kind of happened with me. It's um, I, I hated saying it, and I think a lot of it was my own mistakes of trying to learn the library and all, but in general, I've just found that that's not the way I want to think about systems and how they're put together in terms of being able to reason about the system and everything. And I found it's just, it, it makes it more difficult. I'm much happier if I can just compose functions together that if there needs to be some asynchronous behavior, then see we can't do that with futures or maybe a stream of, of events. Yeah, because it's one of those things I wasn't sure. I've seen the Aka stuff and I've seen reference into it. And as nice as it looks coming from some other languages, because it's got to interrupt with the JVM, what kind of seems odd to me, but I completely understand why it's necessary and needed is the fact that even the messages that you pass around between the actors can be immutable. So you have to be careful about that as well. So if I pass an object as a message, it's still mutable and that actor can change it. So if you're not careful, just like any sharp tool, you can get yourself into a bind there as well. Yeah, I agree. There's, um, if you're using Scala, even there's, you're going to tend to make things immutable, but there's no guarantee. I don't know how it is with Erlang, on the other hand, because I've not done much. But, you know, if they have that guarantee, then you can probably feel a lot better about it. 
So it is sort of one of those things you just have to have a team standard that we're not going to have mutating messages because that would be a problem. The whole thing breaks down if you do that. Absolutely. So that's a good overview. And I'll make sure to include your blog post as the show notes as well for people to read more details about your breakup with ACA. Yeah, very cool. But you've also been doing some conference tours and routines and attending and speaking at conferences with Scala. There was Scala by the Bay. I know you just kind of came back from relatively recently. Scala World is coming up. And then I think you mentioned Scala Days before the call because I can't keep track of Scala conference names, just not being (laughs) in that world all the time and confusing them. But do you want to talk about a little bit of your things you've seen this past year or recently or what you're going to be coming up and talking about in the conference arena? Yeah, so right. So you actually got all the names right. So kudos. So yeah, it's sort of my first one was back in March at Scala Days. And, uh, you know, it was my, I had done small conferences here and there. I did a little bit of No Fluff Just Stuff tour, which is more of a training type of conference. But Scala was the first one that I had gone to where it was uh, more community driven more about like, hey, here's the cool stuff this technology is capable of, and we're just together because we're excited about it. And I submitted a proposal. I thought, well, you know, I'll just try. Why not? And it got accepted, which, um, you know, I was very flattered by that. And the paper that got accepted was about type programming. And it was just something completely foreign to me coming from Java. And I had started exploring it on my blog and kind of out loud and getting feedback from folks who are also in the Scala community and just sort of kind of learning how you can sort of play in the type system and how powerful it is and so forth. And I just felt like, hey, you know, I could assemble this into a talk. And that's how that came about. You know, it was an outstanding experience to get to go there in March because there's so many folks in the Scala community who I just really enjoy online through either Twitter or GitHub or however it is we're interacting and finally get to meet folks in in person and really get names and faces and Twitter handles all wrapped up into one in person. So overall, it was just, for me, the first thing was just tremendous. Like I I really enjoyed the Scala community and I I think it's a great group of folks and um, was was very happy to, to get to start meeting everyone. And then for you and anybody who's listening, you've probably figured out that I have quite the thick Southern drawl. So I think a lot of people got a lot of entertainment out of hearing my particular accent, giving a technical talk on Scala. And then from there, I you know, met others like uh, John Preddy, who's doing the Scala World, and Alexi, who does uh, Scala by the Bay. And like, hey, you've got to submit a proposal. Like, you got to come to our conference. So I'd like to think that it's because I know what I'm talking about, but I think they just like hearing my voice more than anything because it sounds funny. And uh, so that's what's kind of got me on sort of the, the conference tour with Scala lately. And so the one coming up at Scala World, I'll, I'll be doing a, a little bit faster paced version of the type programming talk. And then Scala by the Bay actually got to talk about some of the lift work we've done here at work and integrating Angular as a front end and how you can do a really smooth interop between Lyft and Angular. So that was a really fun talk because I got to talk about the, the one thing I've really contributed to in open source so far. Overall, the Scala community seems to be growing and doing and very healthy. I'm trying to think of some themes that were sort of there because the Scala Days is a bit wider, I say a broader scope of folks come there because there's beginner tracks, there's advanced tracks, there's in the middle of the road. So there it was more of just, hey, Scala's awesome, powwow. I felt like Scala Days was interesting. It had some themes, one of them being frustrations with API changes. Not so much for the language itself. The language has been fairly stable in that regard, but other frameworks and things. There's some popular frameworks that folks have expressed frustration that across minor versions have had breaking changes. And some of that was new to me. Um, again, I'm, I'm part of the Lyft community and one of the, the committers there. And we greatly, greatly stress don't break the API across minor versions or anything like that. Only break across major releases. So that was kind of eye-opening to me that that was still a problem because I'm kind of in that camp where we don't, uh, we just don't do that. So I'll just say this, if, if you're having frustration with a web framework breaking the API, come check out Lyft. You're not going to have that problem. So that was kind of the, I felt like the theme that was there other than, you know, just kind of like what's sort of going on in the community. Otherwise it was just a lot of great talks, a lot of great presentations, cool stuff that's going on in the community, folks building some really exciting libraries and things like that. Oh, and another thing I'll also mention is Scala.js has really picked up a lot of steam, and it was talked a lot about here at uh, Scala by the Bay last week. 
you know, we've not mentioned it yet, but uh, so if you're kind of curious and new to it, so Scala.js is takes the Scala language, compiles it to JavaScript for the purpose of running it in the browser. It was started not terribly long ago. It was after I joined the Scala community, so this is maybe two years old at the most, I would guess. And remember when it got started, I'm like, well, this is really cool and exciting. But I didn't particularly have the time to, to dive into that at, at that point, and nor did I have the experience in the language where I felt I could really contribute. Then a few months ago, it was announced on the TypeSafe blog, like, hey, Scala.js is ready for production. Like, wow, they turned that around very quickly. There's a lot of buzz about writing Scala for your front end as well. I would say that's another kind of big theme that came out with this past conference. As far as your Southern draw goes, I don't notice that just probably mainly because I'm in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So That's right. I hear it a lot, and I may even have one as well. So it it sounds normal to me. but <laughs> That's right. Yeah, to some folks, it seems to be pretty novel. So that's fine. I'll just keep talking like I do, and y'all enjoy it. And then you mentioned the No Fluff, Just Stuff conferences. You also had a little article you got out there in their magazine last year, right? Do you want to kind of promote that a little bit and let people know where they could find it? Yeah, I've actually done two for them. So I'm getting a lot of mileage out of my type programming stuff. I don't mean to be cheap and just recycle stuff, but people are just interested to learn more about it. So I actually compiled sort of my blog posts into a more cohesive story as my first article for No Fluster Stuff. And then uh, the more recent one was earlier this year. It was something I started to endeavor in and just got busy, particularly with talks and things. So that's one thing. And if, if you're listening to the podcast and you're thinking about talking, just know it takes a lot of time. But yeah, the other was just playing with writing bytecode. There's um, a couple libraries out there you can kind of at a slightly higher level than literally putting bytes in. You can actually write J- JVM bytecodes and start to implement your own language and things like that. And I got really interested in that. That's a lot of fun. It's just, it just takes quite a bit of time to do that very well. So I put together an article. It's kind of introducing some, some of the tools and just things to get kind of people playing with it like I was and just to kind of encourage that. But yeah, if you're interested, it's nofluffjuststuff.com. It's mainly a JVM organization of, uh, well, a series of conferences, I should say, and they have a magazine as well. But there's also a lot of web development topics that's popular in in that circle. So if that's uh, what you're interested in, it, it, but it's certainly more Java, JVM, Groovy is pretty popular, but just a touch of Scala and Clojure people are involved in that circle. And you kind of talked about Scala.js, and you've also mentioned on Twitter I've seen about PureScript. So right before we start wrapping up, I want to give you a chance to a little bit talk about your experience with PureScript and what you've seen with there and how you think that might fit in with the future of what you're doing for client side and potentially even say where that would fall compared to Scala.js and why you might pick one over the other. Well, I've been playing with PureScript, but as a sort of separate thread in my mind, just been thinking like, okay, where where are things headed in the web development world? So obviously, you know, so web development is just what I love to do. I'm not particularly strong on the front end and certainly not in user experience of things. There are folks that are much more qualified to do that sort of work. But I, I love that space. I love cloud type stuff and everything around that. And I really enjoy Lyft. I enjoy writing Scala and um, but, you know, just kind of watching the trends and, and things that we could do better. I'm starting to pay attention to pure script because um, firstly, just as a language, it's interesting to learn um, it. So for those of you not familiar, pure script is very much like Haskell. You can almost maybe you could call it a dialect. I think that would be fair, but it's designed out of the box to compile to JavaScript. So it's sort of um, base types like number and string are mapped directly to JavaScript. And the biggest difference between it and Haskell is that it's not lazily evaluated. So if you are coming from Haskell, that'd be the the most, I think I would expect that'd be the most different thing you would experience. But it's teaching me a lot just about statically type functional programming in general, just taking another angle at it now that I'm more comfortable with it and I can step even further from my comfort zone of the Java days. You know, it's kind of helping me think about type classes and other things that you can do in Scala, but you can also avoid completely if you want. So from a learning perspective, that's happening for me. But really what I'm trying to understand more from the big picture is how should we be creating web applications? There's actually a, another group of folks I meet with here once in a while for lunch. And 
just close friends of mine that I've known in the community, it's nothing official or whatever. But, you know, we just talk about like, what are web frameworks doing? What are people building with web frameworks? And one thing that I think kind of resonates in our group is that we feel there's too much client-side rendering because clients are generally getting more and more powerful, but that's not always true for everyone. What really opened my eyes up is when I met some teammates who joined us a little over a year ago in Santiago, Chile. First time to South America, you know, I went down there and, and hang out with my team and get to know them, help them wrap up to the project. But it's interesting because it's a bigger city than what I live in here in the States, but a lot of the things about technology are further behind. And, and one of my teammates had like a, still had an iPhone 3GS because they don't have LTE networks and so forth. And so it just kind of opened my eyes up to like, hey, you know, the whole world's not United States with fast internet speeds and fast machines. And it's really kind of just got me feeling like a lot of the client-side rendering that we're seeing in web development these days is kind of egocentric and just uh, forgetting about what the rest of the world is, is operating like. And but I say all that to say that I just feel like we could do a better job of rendering applications well for those types of situations. And, and I know that's a really roundabout way for me to start thinking about, like, why can't we write web applications that can render client or server? If I know what needs to be rendered on the server, well, let's just render the whole thing, send it to you straight to your client, and it should work well. But maybe that same code could run there in case there's a change. And so maybe you interacted with a web application where we pushed an event, and then I can still run the same code to update your client. So I've been trying to really think about things as um, kind of the big picture and things working more in unison that way. And that's kind of brought me to PureScript because I feel that the Node.js crowd has something going really well for them. And that is just the idea that, hey, we have to write JavaScript, or I should say, we have to run JavaScript on the client. Why not just say, that's what it is. Let's get used to it and put it everywhere. And uh, I'm not going to write JavaScript, okay? So <laughs> that's, uh, that's something I'm going to shy away from a little bit. But, you know, there's some great languages like PureScript and Elm. And, and then you've got uh, languages like Scala.js. Uh, you get ClojureScript. These are other languages that are now targeting JavaScript that uh, shows there's a lot of potential for maybe even just picking one of these languages and going JavaScript as your runtime, front and back end, so everything's kind of homogenous and one code set. You don't have to make this decision like, well, this code can produce things that can only render on the server. This code can produce things that only render on the client. You don't have to think about those differences and have a more unified stack for you to build your applications with. As far as also with PureScript in particular, and why I'm thinking about that instead of just Scala.js, which is more familiar, is that uh, I really like the fact that PureScript is designed to compile to JavaScript. But Scala.js, Scala been around for years and said, hey, let's put this into JavaScript. Let's see how that works. And there's always all these caveats and things that work or work differently. And, and there's things you got to kind of concern yourself with if you're going to compile these and run in these two different environments. So there's part of me that goes, well, maybe I need to kind of take a look at the node world and see what it might be like if that was the front or sorry, the back end. And that's what we're compiling to. So big picture things I'm thinking about, not necessarily functional programming, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to use a functional programming language, whatever it is I'm doing in the future. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing your write-ups about all that stuff, because I'm kind of on that fence there again, except personally not super fond of JavaScript on the back end with Node. More from the concurrency-limited parallelism, I guess, instead of the concurrency. And So I certainly agree with that. So it's more of an, it is at this point more of amusing, you know, trying to think, would this work well, or could you make it work well? Of course, you also have the option of running your JavaScript with, say, the JVM, right, with Nashorn, things like that. So you do have other options, which may or may not make sense necessarily. But also thinking, I'm specifically just talking about the web front-end server. So obviously, all the stuff you put on your back-end, if you're doing like a microservices architecture and so forth, you could use languages that make more sense, that are a little bit more robust on the server side. But just the idea that whatever code I want to happen on the front-end, I could just as well run on the back-end on behalf of the client so that we keep the clients speedy and acknowledge that not all of them have great internet speeds and great technology and so forth that, that they can run with. Yeah, that makes complete sense. We'll kind of wrap it up. We're getting to the end of time. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but is there anything else you want to plug? You, you kind of mentioned your upcoming appearance at Scala World, but is there anything else that's kind of on your radar, anything else you're involved with that you want to let people know or just Anything in general you want to make sure is on people's radars? Yeah, the other thing I will mention, uh, keep coming back to Lyft. 
One thing to watch out for here is that we're working on the 3.0 version of Lyft. We would like to see it get released at the end of this year, beginning of next year. But that's just kind of us thinking, hey, maybe we can wrap things up. And particular, one thing I'm working on is one of the weaknesses of Lyft is that because of, I see the emphasis placed on security and the value placed on security over other aspects of the framework. Your page loads are tied pretty tightly to a server instance, and I'm doing trying to get some work started to where we can do a better job of having fault tolerance to where a Lyft server can go down and it can be replaced by another instance and seamlessly work without those page loads being sacrificed or anything like that, which I know some people probably hearing this go, what? I thought every web framework worked that way now. Well, Lyft didn't, you know, and it's, it's older. It was before and the era we're in now where we're running on the cloud and we're thinking of everything being redundantly running and replaceable and all those things. That's something I'm working on actively and hope to get better. I'm also trying to do some open source stuff to make it easy to understand how you can deploy Lyft well in production in AWS, which is what we do here, particularly using tools like Packer and Terraform to accomplish that in a very functional, immutable infrastructure type of style. So that's some things that I'm kind of working on right now once I get a few more talks off my plate. That sounds great. So where can people find you online and what's the best way for them to follow you and keep up to date with what's going on in the world of Joe Barnes? Yeah, the main two things is Twitter and my blog. So Twitter, I'm Joski, J-O-E-S-C-I-I. The name like Joe Barnes is awfully common, so it took me a little while to come up with something that was short. And so basically it's ASCII with Joe on the front generally how I can kind of know if you meet me in person, if you're into software or not, because you'll probably pronounce it correctly because you're used to the notion of ASCII or the acronym, I should say. And we've mentioned my blog several times. So it's uh, pros and cons, and it's kind of a vanity URL and a pun. So it doesn't help necessarily for people to spell it right the first time. It's P-R-O-S-E-A-N-D dot C-O dot N-Z. I am from North Alabama. I'm not from New Zealand. I'm often mistaken by that because they see my URL, but really it's just supposed to be a play on words. There you can see what I'm up to. I'm kind of bursty. I tend to write a bunch of blog articles and then I'll go silent for two months and then I'll write a bunch of blog articles. Right now I'm kind of in a busy time, so we're kind of on a quiet trend. But uh, yeah, you can kind of keep up with what I'm using there and, and leave comments and engage me on Twitter and all that. And I love talking about software. So don't be shy to follow me and let me know that you heard of me talking to Proctor here on the show and we'll love to chat with you. And I'll make sure to include links for those on the show notes as well. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Joe, for taking time out of your day and talking with me. We kind of exchanged on Twitter, but it was great actually getting a chance to talk to you over a higher bandwidth medium and getting to dig into some of the stuff you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a total honor to be on the show. I've been a big fan since uh, around episode eight when you had Jessica Care on and just enjoy the show and an honor to be part of it. Well, and I look forward to trying to talk to you in the future some more or maybe even bumping into you at a conference off and on again and maybe even get you back on to talk about future things of some of the scholars that you're doing as well at some point because I'm sure there's more stuff we could have kept going into without running into times. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I could talk all day about this stuff. It'd be great. Always looking forward to it. Just let me know, man. Thank you again. And until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.